every time I do a film, I hope that there's some way I can, in the creation of the film, you know, tease out the humanity so people can touch it and feel it and say, ah, that's what I like to do. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. My name is Pat Zerke and I'm the director of the Forum. Cambridge Forum is now in its fourth decade of bringing you live public forums for the discussion of issues and ideas that are shaping our world. Tonight we'll be discussing I'll Make Me a World, a Century of African American Arts. The last production of the late Henry Hampton this series examines the relationship between the arts and African Americans in the 20th century. Leading our discussion is Sam Pollard, co-executive producer of the six-hour television series and producer of Hours 1 and 2, entitled Lift Every Voice, 1900 to 1937. Pollard is an Emmy-winning producer who has worked on too many film and television projects to list here from Eyes on the Prize 2 to Four Little Girls with Spike Lee last year. In producing I'll Make Me a World, Pollard worked closely with the late Henry Hampton, to whom the series is dedicated. What, what is the story, the overarching story of I'll Make Me a World? Well, the story, in the six hours, we try to, through different artists and specific movements, give you an idea of what it took for African-American artists to create their art and to try to reach, you know, have their art not only work within their communities, but also the impact of their art on the mainstream, on the larger community. And also, I think, over those six hours, you see how, how complicated it is to be an artist, you know? Do you create art for yourself? Do you create art for art's sake? Is art supposed to be social and political? You know, and it's always been a very complicated issue in the African-American community. And when you watch the six hours, you'll, you'll hear the dialogues between people like Du Bois and Zora Neale Hurston in the Harlem Renaissance. You'll see the struggles that James Baldwin has to go through in terms of how he wants to reach, you know, people with his art. And then his, his struggle to commit himself to what was happening in America in the late 50s and early 60s. So it's... Uh, it's a very sort of complicated look at what it means to be an African-American artist in the 20th century. You've laid out a lot of very, very rich themes there. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the relationship, the complex relationship between art and politics. I mean, art and politics has a complex relationship for any culture, but is it more complicated for African-American artists? Well, I, I think it is. I think because of the fact that, you know, we, this country has lived with slavery and, and African-Americans have tried to figure out what their identity is. I mean, I think there's a wonderful statement in the series when you, when you look at it next week. Ossie Davis says, one of the reasons that art was so important in the African-American community because it helped people sort of give them a sense of their humanity. It helped them give them a sense of their identity. You know, and when you see the stories of Paul Robeson and you listen to the stories of the story of Neil Hurston, or you see the story about Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie, or these wonderful ladies, Raven Wilkinson and Dolores Brown, who wanted to be ballerinas, 
some of them are struggling to define themselves with, within a particular art form. Others are struggling to say, can my art do more than just entertain? Can it cause social and political change? And I mean, that's one of the reasons that Paul Robeson is such, a, such an icon, because he realized that it wasn't just enough to become a, you know, a celebrated actor or a wonderful singer. He, he realized that it was important for him to be able to reach out you know, to all people in Russia, in, in, in Spain, in America, and, and hope that his art could make some changes. What kind of hope do you have for the future of African-American arts? Do you think that they, this will be what we know of the culture in the future? Do you think that we'll be able to define the 20th century by the arts that are left? I think that, you know, in 200 years from now, I hope that people can look back on this, this century like we look back on the centuries before us and, and be able to mine those arts and see how important they were to the building of a, of a society and of a culture. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, art is to me extremely important. Creativity is a very important thing. And I think that it's, it's the sustenance for a spiritual growth for most people. And most people sometimes don't even know that art is a part of your everyday life. You know, it's a part of the everyday life. And when you have a chance to go back and read those history books 200 years from now and, and, and read about Buddy Bolden or read about Ralph Ellison or Alice Walker or Toni Morrison, you'll see the impact and the importance of what they did, you know, in helping shape a point of view about life. What about reading Ralph Ellison? And reading Alice Walker, not just reading about them. Well, it's important to read them, too. <laughs> it's important to read them, too. I guess what I'm getting at is there are actual works of art that have been created in the 20th century in, in a very, very rich way. And when you look at all of 20th century culture, from high culture to popular culture. Mm -hmm. An important part of that is, is art by African Americans. Absolutely. And is that going to say something about their place in American society to the future? Well, I think and it, what I think, is it going to say? I think what it's going to say is that when you look, look back at the impact of their culture, you'll see how profound an impact has had on, the, on establishing and shaping how we define American culture today. You know I mean, in terms of the language, in terms of how people you know, think about books and when they read books, in terms of how you look at films, I think it's gonna, and how you hear music, you know, it's gonna have a tremendous influence on, to people when they look back 200 years from now. I mean, when I look back and doing all the research, and you were talking about research, the impact and the importance of research, when I go back and, and we, when we did all this research and all of these people, you know, it surprises me, and I know a lot of this history, how important a Burt Williams is you know, to the legacy of a Sammy Davis Jr. or an Avon Long or even to a Savion Glover. When I look back and I reread Zora Neale Hurston after doing this film, I realize how important she is to a June Jordan who's in this film or an Alice Walker or a Nikki Giovanni or even a Gwendolyn Brooks. So if that impact is that strong within the span of 70 or 80 years, imagine what it's going to mean to people 200 years from now. It'll be tremendous.
I'd like to put a little different spin on this, the question of influence. You talked about the importance of African-American artists for American culture in general. That could be viewed very negatively, couldn't it? I mean, I've, I've heard it talked about negatively in terms of co-opting African-American culture. Well, let me switch it around on you. Let okay. Let's, let's go back to, let's use Louis Armstrong as a perfect example. Now, in 1925, Louis Armstrong recorded a, a wonderful recording called Western Blues, which is, was so profound that he basically established what we know as jazz with that particular opening cadenza. Now, if you're talking about co-opting, you could say then later on, Paul Whiteman and Bix Beiderbecke, they all said, listen to Louis Armstrong. Isn't he a tremendous musician? Let's see what we can learn from him and copy that, which they did. And by doing that, they were, you know, because they were white musicians, it enabled the music to really reach a larger group of people, right? So everybody heard jazz. But if you flip it around, what Louis Armstrong did was he picked up a European instrument. Now, he didn't yes. go back and use an African instrument. He picked up a European instrument, which was the trumpet. And he was able to take that European instrument. He kind of co-opted that, you know. Mm -hmm. And he took that instrument and through that instrument funneled his own energy to create. And you, if you look at African-American artists, they're constantly taking other things, other materials to shape their art. It doesn't just come out of thin air, this thing about creation, you know. It comes from other sources. So if you listen to the blues or you read Zora Neale Hurston, you read, it's, it's about taking from other elements. And it kind of happens, it goes around and around and around and around. The problem with it in this society has been that African-American artists, in terms of how you think about capitalism in America, didn't reap all the rewards. But as you, if you look now at these young, this new generation of African-American artists, these rap artists, they have a different attitude. You know, they're not going to let themselves be so easily co-opted. Not even the jazz musicians nowadays won't do that. They won't give their music away. They won't give anything away anymore because everybody understands that you know, you can reap certain financial benefits from what you have, which the early artists didn't always understand. You know, so artists understand now that what they have is, 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 is treasure, and they just don't give it away anymore. You know, they just don't give it away. You know, they make sure that they reap some of the benefits too. And, and it's a much smarter generation than the earlier generations of artists. You've been listening to Sam Pollard discussing I'll Make Me a World, a Century of African American Arts at Cambridge Forum. The floor is now open for your questions and comments. I'd like to hear a little more about your purpose in producing the uh, television uh, program. Is your ultimate goal to uh, influence uh, white American values, for example, you have that in mind? Or is it uh, less ambitious, just uh, historical, or something in between? Well, I think the ultimate purpose of the series, it's an interesting one. You know, I'm 48 years old, and uh, I grew up in the American public schools, the public system, and I was well-grounded in Mark Twain and Hemingway and Faulkner, and, uh, you know, I understood all that stuff really well. And then I had to go out and search and, and learn about Richard Wright, read Richard Wright, read Zora Neale, listen to Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Duke Ellington. One of the important purposes of this series, I think, is to always say to America, America, black America, white America, that American history, American history is very complicated. It's just not one way to look at American history. 
So I hope that the white viewers who turn on this show, they can look at all these hours and see American history. It's valuable to understand. You know, I always understood there was two ways to look at American history. I think it's time for America to see that. And that's one of the real strong purposes of the series. That's one. The second thing is to sort of just, you know, put on the screen people whose voices, whose lives haven't had an opportunity to be seen. I mean, people know about Duke Ellington. Most people know about Louis Armstrong. And we didn't really focus on them. We tried to focus on people who hadn't had their day in the sun. Someone like Paul Robeson, who wore blackface, which is a painful thing for many people to eat today to even to look at and to think about. But he was a tremendous performer, you know, who had a lot of depth and sincerity about what he was trying to do. It's also to give you a chance to look at someone like Augusta Savage. She was a wonderful sculptor, but what her importance is is that she was a mentor, that she gave back to her community, that she said, I have this, this art, you know, this ability to do something, but I want to be able to teach other young people to do the same thing, you know. It's also an opportunity to look at people who who said, well, they didn't want to just create within what we might consider African-American art forms. They wanted to be able to do something in the European art forms. So we have these two wonderful women, Dolores Brown and Raven Wilkinson, who struggle mightily to try to make it into the, into the world of being of ballerinas. So it's first to let everybody know this is American history and you should watch it. And secondly, to, be, to tell a story of people whose voices haven't been heard. Just to piggyback, on what you had stated, just being a young black man having grown up here in Cambridge, to see my history on the screen, to have a voice being heard is vitally important. So to add on to what you had stated about the purpose, it, it just is very enriching to feel and see myself being reflected and I thank you. And I appreciate the energy and efforts and the research. Having uh, been a film producer and video producer, I understand what it takes. But a question is not only that do you give to the black community and the white community, do you look at this piece as how would I say, a historical reflection, something that 200 years down the line, our children's children can look back and say, see, our ancestors had a rich heritage. Can you look at this piece as something of that nature? Absolutely, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. I think you always have to go back to the books. The books. You know, television, no matter how much I love television and making movies, it's only the tip of the iceberg. You always got to go back to the books. Always go back to the books. I mean, because the books are going to give you a, a wealth of information that we only just barely touch. So what I hope this does, again, like I said earlier, before we screen this, whet your appetite to go pick up Invisible Man or to go pick up Color Purple and read it and to understand why these people are so important. Or go to the museums to see Augusta Savage's work or Romare Bearden's work, you know, because it's powerful work by your, your description of the television program as a kind of a finding aid or an index for other materials. You want, have won Emmy Awards. You've been nominated for Oscar Awards. Those are artistic awards and creative awards. 
So what you're doing is not just a finding aid, it's also an art form in itself. And I wonder if you would say something about the, the process of putting together this piece, the kinds of materials you used, the kinds of decisions you had to make in terms of selecting footage and voices and music and that kind of thing. Any production that Blackside ever undertook involved a tremendous amount of research. So we had production assistants and researchers on almost two years ago, doing a vast amount of research, collecting books and biographies and essays and scholarly work on not only the things you've seen, but probably 60 more people that we didn't get into the series. You know, So when we compiled all that research, the producers could sit down with Henry Hampton, look through all this research and start to decide who should be in this series? How should we tell these stories? Should we tell the stories chronologically like we decided to do? Should we focus on each particular art form for each hour? When you're making television, this type of television, it's very, very tough decisions. So after we've compiled all that research, what Blackside is famous for is what's called school, where Henry would bring together historians and scholars, and in this particular case, artists to spend three days in a room like this where the producers and the associate producers and the researchers would have an opportunity to listen to the historians and scholars talk about the importance of Zora Neale Hurston or the importance of the Harlem Renaissance or the importance of hip hop or the importance of spoken word, you know, so we can sort of get a sense of the direction we should take this series and the stories we're trying to tell. Now, the other thing that we had to deal with at Blackside is that Henry didn't just want to do, like in the old days of Nickelodeon, a little flip book, two minutes on Duke Ellington, two minutes on Zora Neale, two minutes. He wanted to do stories. Blackside's reputation has always been built on telling good, solid stories. So in making the decision about who to select for the series, in doing our research, we tried to make sure we found good stories to tell. So when we found those stories, it helped us to whittle down who was going to be in and who was going to be out. The other part of the selection process was, should we tell Duke Ellington's story again? Should we tell Louis Armstrong's story again? It was a difficult decision, but we realized that this is the 100th anniversary of Duke Ellington's birthday. You know, and there's been lots of documentary films on Duke Ellington, so we felt, okay, we'll take the chance and bite the bullet and not do Duke. We'll probably catch a little flack, but we won't do Duke. So it helped us whittle down even more who we want to use in the series. And then the other thing that helped us in the selection process, when you're doing documentary films of this nature, it's the archival material, the archival footage that you saw in the Zora Neale story, the stills that you've seen in the, in the Raven Wilkinson story. Can we get that type of material to tell those stories? For example, we initially were going to start, we were going to start the series doing a piece on Scott Joplin who's a tremendous composer and musician. But in doing our research for material, there's one picture of Scott Joplin. Everything else is his sheet music. Now, unless we were going to go to a real heavy process of recreating his life like a drama, it'd be very difficult to tell his story. So that helped us make that decision that maybe we can't tell his story in this case, but Burt Williams, who was on the stage, had made movies, 
There's a tremendous amount of stills on him in the archives around the country, at Harvard, in New York, that gave us a window to be able to visualize and tell that story. So when you're making television, you have to make lots and lots of decisions. You know? And then the final decision is always from Black Side was always to tell the story. Henry believed in telling the story in a balanced way. You know, he didn't want to make agitprop. He didn't want to be a flag waver. You know, he didn't want to, you know, present just one point of view. And that's tough sometimes when you're trying to make films, you know, you know, in my opinion. But that was part of our agenda. But again, all of that, all that research, all that we, all we did to make those films, it really is only the tip of the iceberg. Because 10 minutes of learning about Zora Neale Go back to Robert Hemingway's book, you'll learn so much more. Go back and read Mules and Men, you'll learn so much more. You read Their Eyes Were Watching God, you'll learn a lot, <laughs> you know? Um, you talked about Paul Robeson, who was blacklisted from his craft because he was a communist, and James Baldwin, who left this country partially because he was gay, and Sonia Sanchez, who is up on the screen, who uh, often writes poetry about being an abused woman. And I was wondering, did you deal with these issues in this movie? And if so, how did you deal with um, the issues that people had um, about being artists that weren't just about being black artists, but about other complications of their lives? Well, in, in telling the Robeson story, you can't, even in 12 or 15 minutes, you can't tell Paul Robeson's story without telling, talking about the conflicts he had to deal with when he was attacked for being a communist in the late 40s and what it did to his career, you know? I mean, it basically sabotaged his whole career. So you can't tell that story without telling that part because it's a very important part of who Paul Robeson was. And, and that gives you a, a window into how strong his will was and how much he believed in his mission. And also in telling the story of Baldwin, you can't tell that story without, without acknowledging the fact that he was gay. So we deal with all of that. Now, in terms of your, your talking about Sonia, we do talk about the, the notion of abuse, but we only talk about it sort of through the color purple and all the criticism that, that Alice Walker received about dealing the way she dealt with black men in that book. So we try to touch on those things, too. Uh, you said a little bit about Henry Hampton's contribution to this television series. I wondered if you could speak about perhaps his impact on you as a filmmaker that you believe you'll carry forward and also what your contribution or signature on this piece of work is in terms of what you think you brought to its vision as a filmmaker. And lastly, where does the line, I'll make me a world, come from? I'll start with that one first. <laughs> James Weldon Johnson, a wonderful writer from the early 1900s and the 20s, a real leader, one of, one of the leaders of the Harlem Renaissance, wrote a, a poem called Creation. And in that poem, he describes God wanting to make a world. He uses that, that term, I'll make me a world. Henry was, I like to say Henry wasn't a filmmaker per se. He didn't go out and shoot. You know, he didn't like to sit in the editing room and put the pieces together. But he was the visionary. And, you know, you always need a visionary. You need someone who's, who sees the big picture, why you're doing what you're doing and why it's important. And that's what Henry Hampton was all about. He always understood the big picture. And what he did for me and for all the other filmmakers who have, who have gone through Black Side is that he constantly challenged our perceptions. You know, he constantly said to us, wait a second, is that the only way to look at the story of Zora Neale Hurston? Is it more complicated than that? 
Henry was always trying to make sure we understood that life is a complex thing. You know, it's not really black and white. You know, it's very complicated. And so he wanted to make sure that all those stories dealt with that complexity. And he would never let you off the hook. You know, he was always trying to make you sure that you looked at the complexity of any story, of any situation. Now, as a filmmaker who's been, as for myself, as a filmmaker who's been in the business 25 years, I think that what Henry has, has done for me, he's influenced me to, to, to really understand that I always loved documentaries, but he made me understand that documentaries can have a tremendous amount of power to make change. And that if you really believe in it in your heart that you can make a film that can make change, then you, you will do it. And Henry believed that, and, and he's passed that on to me. You know, and, uh, and, I, and I'll always treasure him for that. In terms of my contribution, you know, it's a funny thing about contribution. You know, when you're in the film business, you have a pretty big ego, you know. So you like to think that you did everything, you know. Well, it was my idea to do that interview. It was my idea to get those shots. But in this particular case, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull my ego back a little. And I, and I sort of came to understand in this particular situation working on this series that the collaborative process at Blackside is truly that. It's a collaboration, which can be messy, which can be difficult, but it's truly a collaboration. Because I always used to believe that uh, until this, this, this job, that collaboration meant that I had an idea and people would say, well, Sam, it's not really such a good idea, but if you want to believe it, fine, you should do it. You know, And I would just do it my way anyway, and I would get some lip service. At Blackside, it doesn't work that way. It's truly collaborative where your idea, may, you may feel strongly about it, you know, that, that Zora Neale Hurston was, my, my, was the show I produced. So I said, well, that's the way it should be. But it didn't turn out that way. And maybe that's for the better, that it was a real collaboration, a real synthesis of different thoughts and different ideas in terms of how to see the imagery, in terms of how to write the narration, in terms of what the perspective should be. You know? Henry really made you at Blackside collaborate. So will this have an impact on you? Well, hopefully the next film I work on, which will be in about three weeks, <laughs> I'll understand the idea, the, the philosophy of collaboration and how important it is. And try not to let my ego take precedence. What's your next film? I'm involved in two projects. Um, one that's going to be another six-hour documentary series that's going to look at the years of segregation before where Eyes on the Prize picked up from Reconstruction up to Brown versus the Board of Education. Then I'm also doing a film about a wonderful photographer and filmmaker, Gordon Parks. When you think about your art, what do you want to change? You said Henry Hampton believed that you could change things with documentaries. When you make a documentary, when you made the first part of I'll Make Me a World, did you have something you wanted to change? And if so, what was it? I think John Wyman said it very simply when I, I was listening to the, the piece. And he said that Zora Neale Hurston, what she did was she went back in that community in Eatonville and she took what those stories were and she stylized them, she elevated them so people could read and see how profound and how important, how humorous, how comical, how sad, how tragic people's stories can be, you know, and she turned them into art. And that's always sort of been my, my mission, 
I mean, in a way that every time I do a film, I hope that there's some way I can, in the creation of the film, you know, tease out the humanity so people can touch it and feel it and say, ah, that's what I like to do. Thank you, Sam Pollard. You've been listening to a program of Cambridge Forum, a free public forum in Harvard Square, Cambridge, Massachusetts, co-sponsored by the First Parish in Cambridge, Unitarian Universalist, the Lowell Institute, and the Friends of Cambridge Forum. For an audio cassette of this program entitled I'll Make Me a World, send a check or money order for $11 to Cambridge Forum, 3 Church Street, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02138 or call 617-495-2727. Thank you for joining us.